Please stand for the reading of God's Word. The reading today is from Exodus chapter 15. Really nice to see some uh, familiar faces from the past. Jake and Irma are here, the Streckers. Good to see you again. And uh, Rick and Debbie and all the others who uh, we will see throughout the summer. It's great to have uh, people with us that uh, have meant so much to us in the past. Our series is entitled, Honey, I Shrunk My Faith. And... Uh, this episode today is called Happy Days. And when we're looking at the experience of the Hebrews in the wilderness, we realize that faith does not remain static. It either increases or shrinks. And there are two factors that put our faith at risk. The first is some unexpected crisis. That's the kind the Hebrews faced at the Red Sea. But secondly, there's always this prevailing attitude of disappointment. And that's what happened to them in the wilderness. The enemy may not be able to destroy our faith in one massive blow, but he can diminish it on the installment plan, one disappointment at a time. This morning we'll begin in uh, Exodus chapter 15. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to experience your presence. This is the day you've made, and that really became evident to me as I walked into church. I was talking to Pastor Gary, and he was mentioning how the Ethiopian church had a celebration yesterday. There was like over 250 people here for many hours. We just praise you for what you're doing there. And then talking to Marlene as we were shaking hands, and her son is going through chemo, Raymond, and and just 
the way she's been encouraged through this and, and the smile on her face, what a, what a victory in her life, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Lord, you're doing great things, and we just want to see that. We want to be part of that. So on the altar of our praise, there will be no higher name than Jesus, Son of God. It's in your name that we've gathered here, and all that we do is for your honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. American poet E.A. Robinson observed that the world is like a kindergarten where the children are all trying to spell God using the wrong blocks. And that's where most of our problems originate. False ideas about God have serious consequences. A.W. Tozer said, inadequate ideas about God will rot the religion in which they appear. And we see that happening in our society. Our culture still believes in the existence of God, but he's had some major reconstructive surgery until he doesn't even resemble the God that we find revealed in the Bible. And that's why irreverence is acceptable. Immorality is applauded. Impurity abounds. We even take pride in our sinful lifestyles because there's no fear of judgment since hell is now out of business and all roads lead to heaven. I wonder if that's according to Google Maps. Now, of course, we know better than that. Those who read their Bibles are not going to be fooled by the funky fads and the shallow superstitions that are so popular in these dark ages. We know better, and yet we can still be victimized by misconceptions about God. For example, there's a basic tendency for many of us to underestimate God, especially when we experience difficulties. And the consequence of underestimating God makes us vulnerable to anxiety and fear and even despair. And the only way to avoid that is by deliberately and constantly upgrading and expanding our awareness of God's greatness especially when we face the worst circumstances of life. If we don't do that, we're going to have the same problems the Hebrews had after they were released from slavery in Egypt. They had been the eyewitnesses of God's omnipotence in ten terrible plagues. God had demonstrated his superiority over the world's leading superpower. Those experiences expanded their awareness of the surpassing dimensions of his divine sovereignty and majesty and glory. And it was absolutely clear, we have a great God. But then they marched right to the shores of the Red Sea. Okay, we make that a great God who has a poor sense of direction. They were trapped. Behind them, the mighty hordes of the Egyptian cavalry was incoming at full speed. Soon the sea would be red with their spilled blood. It looked like the end of the world. Oh God, why have you forsaken us? And their faith shrunk until it was about three sizes too small. Except for Moses. He knew that God was bigger than this crisis. And so he commanded in chapter 14, 
Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So the Hebrews escaped through the sea. And the Pharaoh's forces continued their pursuit, but the waters returned and the enemy was drowned. Except for those who managed to swim to shore, who then continued their pursuit and harassed Israel all the way to Canaan. Well, not exactly. All the enemy died that day, just as Moses had promised. He said, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. In fact, they weren't a factor later on in the Bible at all. Problem solved. We have a great God. It's time to celebrate. And Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. He is my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working in wonders? That's the first worship service that they had in about 400 years that wasn't filled with laments. They had experienced a victory, a triumph. So now it was on to the promised land where they could live happily ever after. Verse 22 of chapter 15 says, then, or chapter, yeah, then Moses led, the, led Israel from the Red Sea and they went to the desert of Shur. So they're now in the Sinai Peninsula, which has been called one of the wildest, barest places on earth. A tangled maze of mountains piled in inextricable confusion. This wasteland looked ominous. But the Hebrews were still on a spiritual high for that entire first day. On the second day, their adrenaline was beginning to dry up. The Lord is my strength and my song. Their faith was beginning to droop. He is my God and I will praise him. That's how some of us sing on Sunday, isn't it? Kind of like that. Not too enthusiastic. For three days, they traveled the desert without finding water. The scorching sun had sapped their sanctification. Overhead, the vultures were beginning to circle. This was definitely the end of the world. But then they found water. Everybody now, the Lord is my strength and my song. He is my God, and I will... Oh, the water is poisoned. What is this? Verse 23. When they came to Mary, they could not drink the water because it was bitter. What a crushing disappointment. After three days, all we find is this alkaline slew. I knew it. God has forsaken us. This was too much. Verse 24. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? This was a serious problem, no water. We haven't experienced water shortages. When we were in Kenya, during a, we were there during a drought, and in one ghetto there was a water tower. 
that was empty. And so the women had all lined up their plastic jugs in order, waiting for the water to arrive. There was hundreds of plastic jugs circling this water tower for people who hadn't had any fresh water for a long time. And nearby in the shade, the women waited for water to arrive. It had been three days. It was becoming a very serious problem. No water in the desert? That is a very, very difficult problem. And these people were really not that different from us. Their faith was kind of like the stock market, subject to sudden fluctuations, especially when rumors begin to spread. Then there's panic. Sell, sell, sell. I hate to admit it, but a lot of times I'm an existentialist. My faith is determined by my circumstances. I'm much more spiritual when the temperature is above 17 degrees. That's kind of my, my threshold. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? At that point, it didn't matter that there were 10 plagues in Egypt. Parting the Red Sea doesn't help us now. God, what have you done for me lately? It's so hard to wait to trust God in these difficult circumstances. Now, of course, we know that our faith is supposed to be focused on the promises of God's word. But sometimes those promises are no better than a post-dated check. And the problem is we need cash right now. So the people grumbled. Some of you may be going through a prolonged spiritual drought right now. It's been a long, dry spell. When faith is dehydrated, it tends to shrink. Verse 25, then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Problem solved. Amazing. And that water was so good. Now, where were we? Oh, yeah. The Lord is my God, and I will praise him. Oh, we have a great God. Who is like you, majestic and awesome and working wonders? It's all good. And it only got better. Verse 27 says, Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped near the water. It was like paradise. And it must have been tempting. Why don't we stay here? This could be our promised land. What more do we need? That's why there are some Christians who have actually stayed at Elam. Once upon a time, they experienced a blessing or a miracle or a revival, and they decided to put down roots. And they're still there after all these years. It's all they talk about, about something that happened at the camp or at the conference or at their last church or back in the 70s. They're very nostalgic about the good old days. Unfortunately, God hasn't done anything new in their life for decades because they refused to move on. They were sanctified and then petrified. God had a lot more to offer the Hebrews than Elam. That's why we have to keep moving. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, And the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. 
So all things were still marvelously working together for good. Until, of course, the next crisis. Verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death? Sure, Egypt was bad, but it wasn't this bad. If only we would have stayed in Egypt, the good old days back in Egypt. That pharaoh was such a nice man. Disillusionment has a way of warping our memory. I've had a problem with this until I finally decided that I would not trade my worst day as a Christian for my best day as a non-Christian. And that's my final answer. We forget the hopelessness, the guilt, the self-deception, the fear of condemnation. Who would ever want to go back to that? Ah, the good old days in Egypt. At least we had food to eat. Verse 8 is interesting. Moses says, you are not grumbling against us, but against God. See, their complaints were addressed to Moses, but they were being forwarded to God because he is the primary target of our disappointments. Verse 9, Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. It's interesting when you look at the experience of the Hebrews, you find that God's provisions in the wilderness were manifested in different ways. Sometimes his provisions were predictable, like the manna. God's mercies were new every single morning. They could have had a sign that said McManna, over 99 million served. I'll have mine supersized. Manna, every single morning, it was very convenient. So why don't all of God's provisions appear right on schedule? Well, it's because manna consumers don't have a lot of personal testimonies. It's those who've experienced drought that have the, a compelling story to tell. That's why God's provisions aren't always as predictable as the manna. Sometimes they're as unpredictable as the streams in the desert. Manna only turns us into satisfied customers. Thirst has the potential of transforming customers into close companions because it's our thirst that makes our faith personal. Because we don't just use God to meet our needs and then continue with our life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When you're thirsty, you will pray more. And you don't just casually read your Bible, you search the scriptures. Search it as if your life depended on it, because it does. When you're thirsty, you plead with God, pour out your spirit. Thirst is what makes our faith 
personal. When was the last time you really thirsted for the living God? Of course, thirst can also send us in the wrong direction. In chapter 17, we read, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord had commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? This is another fine mess you've gotten us into. You know that grumbling is sort of just like a rerun? You always hear the same thing all the time. It's never anything new. You see the pattern that's emerging. Verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go and I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Are these people ever going to learn? In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 comments on this chronic complaining. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 4, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that your forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Paul saw the Exodus as a preview of our salvation through Christ. What that rock was to the Hebrews, Jesus Christ is to us. He's the water of life. And of course, he's also the bread of life. In fact, Christ is everything. Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. All of God's provisions, all of God's promises are available through Jesus Christ to all who believe and all who will receive. Now, the Hebrews in the wilderness received God's provisions, but they didn't always believe. And that's even though no other generation had more evidence than they did. They saw all kinds of signs and wonders and supernatural interventions, but all those miracles didn't change their manners. Watch how Paul summarizes their experience, verses 5 to 9. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. It is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. And we should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Paul talks about what the Hebrews did when they forgot about being faithful to God and just began to indulge 
in their own desires. These were all acts of high treason, and they had serious consequences. That's why they were given the death penalty. Did you know that God has not changed? God still doesn't tolerate idolatry or sexual immorality. And we understand that, but now check this out, verse 10. And do not grumble as some of them did. And they were given a timeout. Now, not a wimpy five-minute timeout, a full 10-minute, because this was really serious. Well, it actually says, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Killed? Why? Because they grumbled? Are you serious? Everybody does that. And do not grumble as some of them did and they were killed. When Paul talks about the transgressions of that terminal generation, he makes no distinction. All four of these offenses are equally serious to God. Do not grumble as some of them did. Now, we don't commit idolatry. We don't commit sexual immorality. We don't test God. But do we grumble? Well, sometimes. But there's a reason. It's our church. It's our pastor. It's the music. It's those teenagers. It's those seniors. It's our parents. It's our children. It's our husband. Certainly couldn't be our wife. You can always find something to complain about. Now, I know this doesn't happen here, but there's a church down the road where there's some grumbling going on. You know, it's one thing to have a legitimate criticism and to tell it to the person responsible and then just leave the rest to the Holy Spirit. But it's another thing to put it on social media. And I'm not talking about Facebook. I'm talking about venting your complaints to anyone who will listen. When grumbling goes viral, that becomes a spiritual problem. And it can be as serious as idolatry or sexual immorality. And God does not overlook it. There's a whistle on that play because it's out of bounds. Bill Gothard used to say, I don't want to hear your you criticize someone else because if I'm not part of the problem and I'm not part of the solution, then it's gossip. If I'm not part of the problem and if I'm not part of the solution, then it's gossip. And grumbling is probably 99% gossip. And it can undermine the morale of a church. And grumbling becomes chronic because even if this problem is solved, tomorrow there'll be another one that I can grumble about. And eventually we become cynical. The Hebrews continued complaining for 40 years. And Paul says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Those grumblers just kept wandering around in the wilderness. They never entered the promised land. When you fall into the temptation of grumbling, it becomes, life becomes a rerun. 
There are no new episodes. Grumblers tend to wander around in circles. Hey, didn't we see that same cactus a month ago? Yeah. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. We can learn from the mistakes others have made, which is great because it's a tremendous labor-saving device. That way we don't have to bother committing those mistakes ourselves. But of course, we wouldn't do that. Not us. We're way too mature. Look at verse 12. So if you think, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I've been pastoring for some 40 years, and I've heard a lot of grumbling in 40 years. And most of it comes from sincerely committed Christians because they care. You don't hear grumbling from half-hearted believers because they really don't care. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And then he says, here's the good news. No temptation, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful that when you are tempted, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The good news, there's always a way out. Every disappointment is a temptation to grumble. So we need to look for the exits because grumbling has all kinds of side effects and the worst one is that it tends to diminish our concept of God. When you grumble, your God just gets smaller and smaller until, honey, I don't know what happened. It seems like my faith has shrunk. Grumbling is the sound of faith deflating. That's the sound faith makes when it deflates. So the best way out of grumbling is to magnify God. The next time you feel compelled to grumble, not you, of course, I'm talking about that church down the road, and I sure hope this message reaches them before it's too late. But if you happen to feel the temptation to grumble, when you feel a grumble coming on, change that grievance into a glorification who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? I love coming to church and singing along with these worship songs because they cleanse my mind. And when I've sung a couple of songs, I can't even remember what I was upset about. Has that ever happened to you? I forgot what I was upset about because worship has taken over. If you're excited about God, if you're passionate about God, it is absolutely impossible to grumble. Did you know that? Try it sometime. It, it won't work. You can't think of anything to grumble about if you're aware of God's greatness. So don't tell us about your disappointments. Tell us instead about some of the great things that God has done in your life in the past. How has he provided for you in difficult times? 
And then add to that and tell us about some of the promises that he's made that you were eagerly anticipating seeing God fulfill in the future. And then there's a big finish. What are you grateful for in the present? He is my God, and I will praise him. I will exalt him. You know, sometimes worship is an act of defiance. It's a defiance against the disappointments of life. And when some of you worship, that's exactly what you're doing. You're saying, this, this is what really matters, worshiping God, because he will see me through this difficulty. Grumbling is a temptation, but there's a way out. And when you find that exit, then you can start making some real progress towards the promised land. These things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Lord, we are also on our way. We're on our way to experience what you've promised for us as a church. And we want to get there as quickly as possible. We don't want to spend 40 years for what could be a journey that would take 40 days. We want to be able to experience what you have for us without any delay. And so we understand, Lord, that those things that delay us are the temptations that pull us away from you. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord, and also grumbling. These things are not worthy of you, and we reject them because we have a higher purpose, and we look forward to the promises that you're going to fulfill in the weeks and the months ahead because we are your people. You've called us out of bondage into freedom and into glory. And every day we have an opportunity to experience you in a greater way, to magnify you in our lives. Thank you for this. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing majesty. Lift him up. Worship His majesty Unto Jesus Be all glory, power, and praise Majesty 
throne unto his own his anthem reigns so exalt lift up on high the name of Jesus magnify come glorify Christ Jesus the King majesty worship his majesty Jesus who died now glorified King of all kings let's sing that again majesty worship his majesty unto Jesus be all glory power and praise majesty kingdom authority flows from his throne unto his own his anthem raised so exalt lift up on high the name of Jesus magnify come glorify Christ Jesus the King majesty worship his majesty Jesus who died now glorify King of all kings Jesus who died now glorify King of all kings Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, your heavenly Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Amen.